Let me read to you from Genesis chapter 15 and verse number 6. And he believed in the Lord, and he, that's the Lord, counted it to him for righteousness. This text is simply stating Abraham's justification. As Bible-believing Protestants, the truth that we emphasize over and over and over again, which is the great truth of the Reformation, is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And in the life of Abraham, we can mark out some nine different occasions when God manifested himself to that man. In this particular chapter, Genesis 15, uh, the fifth of those nine occasions is mentioned. And I think it's worth noting that in Scripture 5 is the number of grace. And in this chapter, the grace of God is particularly seen in the justification of Abram by faith alone. Now, notice that the chapter begins with a statement that is, is something of a prophetic formula in the Bible. You, you find it a lot in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came unto Abram. You see that with Ezekiel, you see it with Isaiah and others, the word of the Lord came. This is the first mention of the phrase in the whole of the Bible in relation to Abraham, but it's often seen in the lives of the prophets, for example, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. We've been talking a lot recently about Genesis being the book of beginnings, and therefore you're going to find a lot of first mentions of things in that part of Scripture. It's the first book of the Bible. You're going to find the first mention of a lot of doctrines and a lot of concepts and themes and people. And the thing about Bible study is that there are certain rules that you need to follow. One of them is to think about the law of the first mention. Uh, when a doctrine or a concept is mentioned for the first time in the Bible, it gives you a, a key, if you like, to its use and its meaning throughout the Scripture. It's kind of a key to all of the other references. And so you should always look carefully at the first mention of anything in the Bible. It will provide you with a key that unlocks that truth in the rest of Scripture. Now in Genesis 15, there are several first mentions. In verse 1, you have this little statement, fear not. And you find that a lot of times in Scripture. You find it in the ministry of Christ. You find it in the book of Isaiah, fear not, for I am with thee, and so on. Fear not. It's the first time it's ever mentioned. In verse 6, you have three different words that are used for the first time in the Scripture. There's the word believed. There's the word counted. It could be reckoned or accounted. And then there's the word righteousness. There is a vision mentioned here that was recorded at a particular period for a precise purpose. There are some who believe that Abram appears here for the first time in a new character, that of a prophet, a depository, if you like, of the will and the counsel of God. But whatever be the case, if you look at this vision of God to Abram, you'll see within it a lot of things that will be of benefit to your life and mine. 
I want to talk about a couple of things first before I get to the main point, which is the great truth that we emphasize on Reformation Day. But in the first place, you'll notice concerning Abram that in his life there was on this occasion a removal of his apprehension. The Lord removed his fear. Verse 1, there's that great statement, fear not. Now when you're reading your Bible, you should pay attention to certain phrases. For example, in verse 1, we read, after these things. Now that should automatically cause you to think, well, what things? After these things, okay, I'm going to have to read what came before to know what the Lord is referring to. And what came before is obviously chapter 14. And there was there a number of events. There there were a number of events that took place. and, And we can guess, we can conjecture as to the reasons for the fear that Abram may have felt in his heart. Based on what we read in chapter 14. Because it mentions there the enemies that he had defeated. But Abram might well have feared that those enemies would regroup that they would reassemble, that they would reorganize and come after him again. That could have been the source of his fear. He might also be afraid that he might lose out personally because he had refused the provisions that were offered to him by the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom said, look, I'll give you this, I'll give you that, I'll give you the other thing. And he said, no, no, I don't don't want that, I don't need it. Then he may have been thinking, you know, I probably could have done with that. And that might have created a fear in his heart. But notice how God spoke to reassure his heart. God said two things. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. I am thy shield. In other words, I will be your protector. But I am also thy exceeding great reward. I will be your provider. A preacher once said to me, Brother, where God leads, He feeds. And where God guides, He provides. That's absolutely true. And you will find that if you put first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, that all other things will be added to you. Even a spouse. The Lord is able to do that when you honour Him. And I don't believe for a moment that God will ever allow his people to lose anything by honouring him and by glorifying his name and by putting him first. You will not lose by doing that. Great missionary who lost his life in South America and Ecuador, Jim Elliot, once said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The Lord will make it up to you. He is our shield. He is our exceeding great reward. And again, how often the Lord uttered his fear knots to his people in sacred history. There's a verse that my wife has written out in her own handwriting that's on the dressing table in our bedroom. It sits right there. It says it folded in a way that it'll sit against whatever it's up against, a lamp or something. And it is Isaiah 41 verse 10. I want to read it to you. It's a verse that means a lot to her. She calls it her medical verse. When she's had various difficulties like the thyroid cancer and other things, she's pleaded this verse. What a great text it is. Fear thou not, 
for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. And she has written in her own handwriting under that, Amen. Because she believes it. And what a promise that is for all of God's people. Isaiah 43 verse 1 says, Now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. Then you have this great promise, not if, but when. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When, not if, when thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. And many of God's people have put promises like this to the test. The child of God need not be afraid of any foe when he has Christ as his leader. But one other thing I want to mention here to suggest a reason for Abram's fear was his reverence for the God who now appeared to him in this vision. Could it be that Abram was so awestruck by this appearance of the Lord to him that he was like the beloved John in Revelation chapter 1 where he fell at his feet as dead? Falling prostrate at his feet, overcome with awe and reverence. Here is a removal of Abram's apprehension. But there's also his reception of God's assurance. He received assurance. Abram started out with a despondent inquiry in verse 2. He's asking this question. He says... Lord God, what wilt thou give me, saying I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? This is a despondent inquiry. There's also here a disappointed experience, because he's childless. He has no seed. It's been about ten years since he entered Canaan, and though God had promised him a seed, there was absolutely no sign of the fulfillment of that. Was he doubting God's promise? Was he thinking, well, I've made a mistake. The Lord maybe didn't really say that to me. My wife's old. I'm old. We're beyond that age of having children. How's this ever going to happen? And there was a discouraged expectation as a result of that. Because in verse 3, I think, Abram is revealing that he's almost given up hope. He says, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, And lo, one born in my house is mine heir. He's beginning to think that this steward of his, Eliezer, is going to be his heir. He's not going to have a child of promise. Have you ever been in that place where you feel like the Lord gave you a word and it hasn't been fulfilled and you start to doubt and you wonder, is this ever going to happen? And you need another word from the Lord. Well, that happened to Abram here in verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying... See, the Lord spoke to him again. Verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram. But now the, the word of the Lord's coming to him again. Isn't it great how the Lord speaks to us again and again? Not just once, but again and again. And every time we come to his word and we say, Lord, I need a word. The Lord gives us a word. 
And here it is. God had not forgotten his promise. And he tells them that in verse 4. This, that's Eliezer, shall not be thine heir. No, it's not him. But he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. I know you're an old man. And I know your wife's an old woman. But you're going to have a son. I'm going to make sure it happens. See, God had not forgotten his promise. If God could forget his promise, he wouldn't be God. He's not going to go back on his word. You go back to Genesis 12, and you'll see in verse number 7, the Bible tells us that the Lord appeared unto Abram, and he said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And again in chapter 13, verse 16, And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. So he's reassuring Abram's heart by repeating the promise, but also by causing Abram to take that look upward. You see this in verse 5? And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Now when you live in areas of light pollution like many of us do, you can't really do this very well. But I recall one of the first times I ever visited my wife's home place in Iowa. I used to think, what do these people do? There's nothing here. I'm from the city. It was so quiet. It was so quiet. It was deafening. Couldn't believe it. Where is everybody? The neighbor is like three miles down the road. But oh, at night time you go up on a clear night. Oh, the stars, unbelievable. Like, I've never seen anything like it. Why? Because there's not all these city lights destroying what you're going to see in the heavens. Absolutely amazing. That's what Abraham looked at. He looked up and there he was in the Middle East looking up at all those stars, myriads of them. And the Lord said, Abraham, that's your seed. The people that will be born of your progeny, that's what they're going to be like. Like the sand of the sea, like the stars of the heavens. Take the upward look. Look up toward heaven, Abram. And men and women, that's the direction that we need to lift our eyes when we have doubts and fears. Lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Psalm 121, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. It means actually beyond the hills. To the one who made the hills to the Lord who made heaven and earth. And it's really worth noting the three metaphors God employed here in speaking about the numerous seed of Abram. Chapter 13 and verse 16, he's referring to the dust of the earth. In chapter 15 and verse 5, it's the stars of the heavens. And in chapter 22 and verse 17, he uses another illustration. And this time, he says, as the sand which is upon the seashore. Have you ever tried to count the grains of sand on the shore? That's a fruitless exercise, a futile exercise. There's so many of them. Millions and billions. Now in Genesis 15, the metaphor is the stars of the heavens. And so included in this promise of the seed is Christ himself and the offspring of Christ spiritually, his people. See, the one who created the stars 
was able to give Abram a seed, even though all the outward appearances, humanly speaking, were contrary to that possibility. I love that verse. With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Why? Because he's God. Because he is God. John Calvin said, God intended to strike the mind of Abram with this thought, He who by his word alone suddenly produced a host so numerous as the stars, by which he might adorn the previously vast and desolate heaven, shall not he be able to replenish my desolate house with offspring. And if you study Galatians chapter 3 as well as Romans chapter 4, you'll see the fulfillment of that seed. But that brings us to the main thought here. There was to Abram a revelation of his acceptance. A revelation of his acceptance with God. And here is verse 6. And he, Abram, believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. This is what I would refer to as the pivotal statement the key sentence in the entire biography of Abram's life. This is it, right here. He believed in the Lord, and God counted it to Abram for righteousness. Here is the wonderful, profound truth of his justification by God through faith alone in the imputed righteousness of Christ. The question men and women would ask today is, how can I be made right with God? How can I be right with God? Can I make myself right with God? And the answer to that is a very firm no. No, you cannot. You cannot make yourself right with God. Everything's wrong about you and me by nature. We're born in sin. We are partakers of Adam's first transgression. His sin is imputed to us. It's our sin. And not only do we suffer from what's called original sin, we're born in sin, but we actually sin voluntarily against God. No one makes you sin. That's on you. I've never seen a child yet, including my own, who had to be taught to disobey. Never. I've never met one that had to be taught how to say no. It seems to be like that's the first word they're able to think of, right? That's the first word that comes to their mind. No! No! Do this. No. Do that. No. Comes naturally, doesn't it? I was once visiting some homes in my first church in Mount Marion in Belfast. I went to a lady's home. I told her where I was from. We are inviting people to meetings we were having. Oh, she says, I know you. This was my neighborhood I grew up in, by the way. That was the, the, the development I grew up in. I remember you came once and smashed the windows in my greenhouse. I said, oh, don't, don't think it was me. It must have been my friend. Oh, it was you all right. Okay. Things have changed since then. I don't go around smashing people's windows anymore. But why did I do that if I did it? I don't remember doing it, but that's, you know probably right why did I do things like that why did the other little boys rob people's orchards 
climb over the fence and steal their apples and all that. Why do they do that? Because sin comes naturally to the human heart. You don't have to be taught how to sin. It comes naturally to you. So we're in trouble. And even if we were to stop sinning right now to the end of our lives and never do anything wrong ever again, we're still under God's condemnation. We can't save ourselves. We need a Savior. That Savior is Jesus Christ. We need a righteousness which will give us a standing before God that allows us to be free from sin, free from condemnation. And that righteousness can only come to us through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the great truth that was at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. When Martin Luther was making his way up those holy stairs in Rome, the Via Dolorosa, and he was praying all of his prayers and seeking to get right with God by his own works, the thought came to his heart that he had read in Scripture that just shall live by faith. That was like a shaft of light that shined into that man's heart. And he realized then what is articulated in one of our great hymns. No works of merit now I plead, but Jesus take for all my need. No righteousness in me is found except upon redemption ground. Salvation is in Christ alone. So Abram, in effect, said amen to that. He believed in the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him for righteousness. Notice what it says here. He believed. He stayed himself upon the word of the Lord. He trusted in the Lord's word. He believed. And it was counted unto him. You could... You could translate that word accounted or reckoned unto him for righteousness. Now as you study your Bible, and we saw this in Romans 4 as we read it earlier, Abram is called the father of the faithful. He's called the father of those who are of faith. Or you like, if you like, the father of all those that believe. So in a sense he's kind of a representative character, isn't he? And therefore his faith, And his justification spoken of here in the scripture is that which every single believer possesses. And it is that by which they are justified. And what is justification? There's a catechism definition in the shorter catechism that I love. It's one of my favorite definitions of all the catechism. It simply asks, what is justification? And the answer is, justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all our sins, and accepteth us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, and received by faith alone. Now there's a lot in that. Justification is an act of God's free grace. It's not a process. It's not that you start here and you're you're becoming saved. It's an act. You pass from death unto life. That's the terminology the Lord Jesus used in John 5, 24. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me 
hath, H-A-T-H, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. That happens at regeneration, the new birth, when you're born again. It's something that happens instantly. It's not a process. And you don't get born again and again and again and again. You get born again, born of the Spirit with life from above into God's family divine. Justification is an act of God's free grace. Wherein he pardoneth all our sins. Oh, that's good news, isn't it? Not some of our sins. Not most of our sins. Not leaving a few dregs of sin. He pardoneth all our sins. You talk about wiping the slate clean. That's what the Lord does by his grace and mercy. Not one sin is ever remembered against the believer anymore. When that sin is laid upon Jesus Christ. He pardoneth all our sins. And accepteth us as righteous in his sight. Now think about it this way. How the Lord Jesus Christ is accepted by God the Father. He's perfect. He's never sinned. He's never thought about sinning. He did always those things that pleased him. He fulfilled the law of God perfectly. He is accepted before God. And we, Ephesians 1 verse 6, are accepted in the Beloved. That's him. We're accepted in him. So our standing is in Christ. He represents us and we are accepted before God in Him. He accepteth us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Now what does that mean, imputed? Well, it means reckoned or credited to your account. You know, I could have a bunch of money in my bank account and I realize this is hypothetical. I could have a bunch of money in my bank and I say, right, I'm going to pass that money over to your bank account. It comes out of my bank account and it goes into yours. And so it's been debited from me, but it's now credited to you. It's yours. That's the righteousness of Christ. Think about it in this way. This black Bible, this is, this is my sin. This is me. My sin is upon me. But when Jesus was on the cross, he bore my sin in his own body on the tree. And here's his righteousness. I'm absent. I'm absolutely without righteousness. Here's his holy perfection. And it's made over to me. And so I am now looked upon by God as righteous in his sight. So simple, isn't it? But it's so wonderful. Accepted in his sight. Because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Now how does that happen? By faith. By faith we accept that. We believe that. We take him as our own. The word faith, the acronym is forsaking all, I trust him. Faith. Now whenever we see Abram, Think about him as a representative character. We know that that is true because in Romans chapter 4, we read it earlier on there, that what was written was not just for his sake. Did you notice that? It says here in verse, uh, let me see what the the actual verse is. Verse 3. 
For what saith the scripture, Abram believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. That's Genesis 15 verse 6 being repeated there. Now come down to chapter Romans 4 to verse number 22. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. In other words, it was reckoned to his account for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. See this? This justification was not just for Abram, it's for us as well. If we believe as he did. This is how believers are saved. This is how sinners come to be saved by grace. This is what all believers possess. It is that by which they are justified. And the terminology here is really important for us to understand. God accounted or God reckoned Abram's faith to be the channel for the reception of the gift of righteousness. Now this is really important for us to to get because some people want to put their faith in their faith. Oh, I I believe, therefore I'm saved. Well, it's not because of your belief that you're saved. It's because of what your belief is in. You understand what I'm saying? It's not just that you believe. It's what you're believing in. That's what saves you. It's Christ who saves, not faith itself. Technically, uh, the great theologian uh, Robert Dabney of the Southern Presbyterian Church, uh, R.L. Dabney said that faith is not the meritorious cause of our justification. It is the instrumental cause. The merit is in Christ. So here we have the occasion of justification. That which occasioned it. Notice carefully, Romans 4 tells us it was not by his works that Abram was reckoned righteous before God. That's out the window. It's not because of his works. Now, of course, you come to the epistle of James, and it does talk about Abram being justified by works. And a lot of people misunderstand that. They say, well, there it is, he was justified by works. But wait a minute. What's that referring to? That's referring to the time when he offered up Isaac. He was showing forth the reality of his faith, and was therefore justified before men. But Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 22. Genesis 15 is where he believed in the Lord and it was counted unto him for righteousness without works. And Romans 4 makes that clear. It says in verse number 2 of Romans 4, For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory. In other words, if Abraham was depending on his works, he would be able to boast in that. He could glory in that. Say, yeah, look, look at the works I did. That's why I'm saved. It says, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abram believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Verse 5 is really important. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. There's salvation by faith without works. Let's not put the cart before the horse. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. We're saved by Christ. But that salvation comes to us by the means of faith. Faith is that arm, that hand that receives Christ. Faith is the eye that looks to Christ. 
Faith is the heart that depends upon Christ. Christ is the one with the merit, but then the works will follow. Someone tells me I'm a Christian. I look at their life and I say, no, no, you're not a Christian. Really? No. Why? Because the life doesn't match up at all with the profession. Now, does that mean we have to be perfect? No, not at all. Of course we're not. None of us are perfect. I saw a bumper sticker one day and it said on it, I'm not perfect, but I'm so close, it's scary. I thought about buying it, but my wife said, no, you, you, you can't buy that. Listen, it's not by works. And it was not by his keeping of the ceremonial law either. Some people have this weird notion, that, you know, people in the Old Testament, they were saved by keeping all those laws. And now in the New Testament we're saved by Christ. What absolute nonsense that is. Abram's in heaven. And when we get to heaven, we'll sit down with Abram, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Because we're all there on the same basis. We've all gotten there the same way. By the work of Christ. And the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone without works is seen clearly in Abram's case. And and his is the example, you will note, that's constantly brought before us by Paul in Romans and in Galatians in particular. Now this word imputation is an interesting word. The Old Testament uh, speaks in several places of the doctrine of imputation or or reckoning, if you like. I'm running out of time here. The, The clock goes like, it just starts to speed up whenever I get into liberty. But anyway... Uh, we'll, we'll try to get through this quickly. In Leviticus 7, verse 18. I'm just going to give you a, a few quick references. Uh, Leviticus 7, verse 18. The Bible says, But if any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings be eaten at all on the third day, it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be imputed unto him that offereth it. Okay, there's that word, imputed. You'll find it again in Leviticus 17 and verse number 4. Where it talks about, in the second part of the verse, Blood shall be imputed unto that man, he hath shed blood. You'll see it again in 2 Samuel chapter 19. 2 Samuel chapter 19 and verse 19. And it records in that verse, He said unto the king, let not my Lord impute iniquity unto me. In other words, don't be reckoning me to be guilty of something. There's that word again, imputed. And you'll see it throughout the scripture. One more reference, Psalm 106 and verse 31. Psalm 106, verse 31. And that was counted unto him for righteousness unto all generations forevermore. It's the same word, imputed, reckoned. Interchangeable terms, imputed, counted. But then you compare Psalm 32 verse 2 with Romans 4 verses 7 and 8. And it brings it into sharp focus right here. You have those beautiful words that are quoted again in the New Testament that are taken from Psalm 32 and verse number 2. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. In other words, he doesn't reckon his sins against his name anymore. That's what we call non-imputation of sin. 
But I said you compare it with Romans 4. And if you do that, you'll see in verses 7 and 8, the reference is given Again from Psalm 32, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. He's not going to reckon or impute sin against you anymore. Now the spiritual result of imputation is righteousness. Now what is that? It is the state or condition of being right with God. Just think about it in that way. I'm righteous. It means I'm right in the sight of God. Again, I emphasize believing in itself is not meritorious. It's not our faith which is saving. It is that which our faith lays hold of. It's the righteousness of Christ. It is not my tears of repentance or prayers, but the blood that atones for the soul. That's the truth. And so the spiritual result of this here is righteousness. See, God writes down every believing man and woman as being a righteous man or woman, not because of what they are in themselves, but for what they are in Christ. That's it. In Christ. The Lord Jesus is our righteousness. That's one of his names in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 23, 6. In the margin it is Jehovah Sidkenu. It means the Lord our righteousness. He's made unto us righteousness. So there's the occasion of justification. Not by works. There's the object of justification. Notice it was the word of the Lord that Abram believed. Simple. He believed God's word. But it was God's word in relation to the divine promise of the Redeemer to come. You know some preachers have a weird notion that Abraham knew nothing about the gospel. Well, they must not have read their Bibles. Because the New Testament tells me that God preached the gospel to Abraham. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. Very clear. I didn't write it. This is the Lord's word. Galatians 3 and verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He said unto seeds as of many. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, unto thy seed, which is Christ. You go back in the chapter to verse 7, sorry, verse 6, and you have a repetition of the verse that we're looking at. Galatians 3, verse 6. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Where's that from? Genesis 15, verse 6. But read on. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith... The same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. When Abraham had Isaac on that altar, and God spoke to him and said, Don't kill him. Take him off the altar. There's a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Take that ram and offer it up for a burnt offering in the stead of thy son. Abraham recognized there and then the gospel. Why? Because Jesus said in John chapter 8, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. 
And so isn't that word glad there, you know, it means to jump up and down. Abraham got really excited about the fact that Christ was pictured at that time in that sacrifice. Oh, he's the object of justification. How was Abraham saved? He was received into the number and the rank of justified persons by the imputation of Christ's righteousness to him. How will anybody be saved today or in any other generation? By the same imputation of righteousness. You must believe in the Lord and he'll reckon it to you for righteousness when you're believing on Christ. You see, Abram simply believed God's testimony concerning this. And the testimony of Scripture universally is to the sole and exclusive efficacy of faith. This is what the reformers were so strong in defending. Salvation is by faith alone. God doesn't save you because of your works. God saves you because of Christ's work. That's it. And that's where our dependence must be. We must simply believe in the Lord, take God at His word, close in with His offer of mercy, His free promise, that's all, and it's enough. And this is the gospel that we bring to sinners. I can tell you this morning, God will save you if you simply trust His word concerning Jesus Christ. You take Him at His word. Believe the testimony that God has given concerning His own Son. And say with old top lady, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me Saviour or I die. That's it. That's it. You know the gospel in a nutshell, don't you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, that's so simple. Brother, that's too simple. It's too simple and people trip over it because it's so simple. What a blessed word whosoever is. I have often used the illustration. I make no apology for using it again. One of the Puritans called Richard Baxter, who's from a place called Kidderminster in England. And Richard Baxter was thinking one day about the assurance of salvation. He was really lacking in assurance. And he thought, you know, it would have been wonderful if God had just put in the Bible. God so loved Richard Baxter that if, that if Richard Baxter believed in him, Richard Baxter would never perish but have everlasting life. And then he began to think about that and he thought, well, there's a whole lot of Richard Baxters in the world. And if I read that, I'd think it was some other Richard Baxter that God was talking about. But he said, it's not. It's whosoever. And that takes in all the Richard Baxters who ever lived or ever will live, including me. Hallelujah. If I come to Christ, He'll save me. And we emphasize this point. Abraham believed in the Lord and through his faith alone, that divine righteousness on which his faith laid hold, it was imputed to him and he was accepted by God as righteous. That is not to imagine that Abraham's faith was perfect. 
And we see before this, and also after this record in, in Genesis 15, that Abram did things that weren't right. For example, when he was in Egypt, he told them that Sarah is my sister. That was only a half-truth, because she was his half-sister. But he was trying to get away with, you know, she's good-looking. These guys are going to fancy my wife, and they'll kill me and take her. So he thought, well, I'll just tell them that she's, you know, she's... But no, that didn't work. That was a lie. That was a lie. He didn't want to suffer the consequences of just trusting God, so he did the wrong thing there. And then he made a wrong move in taking Hagar as a wife. He thought he would just uh, you know, short-circuit God's plan. He would fulfill it by himself by taking matters into his own hands. And so instead of waiting for Sarah to be come expecting a child, he would just take Hagar, the handmaid, at her advice, and she could have the baby, and that would be the promised son. But no, it wasn't. So his was an imperfect faith. But here's the thing, you see, it laid hold of a perfect righteousness and a perfect saviour. You know, I may have smallness of faith, very tiny faith. My, my faith may be weak. My faith may be trembling. But still, if it lays hold of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's saving faith on that account. When I was a wee boy, I used to think it was my little hand holding on to my mummy's hand that got me across the big busy road. But it wasn't. It was her big hand holding mine. The salvation is of the Lord. It's the Lord that saves us. And as Spurgeon said, a trembling hand may grasp the cup which bears a healing draught to the lip. The weakness of the hand shall not lessen the power of the medicine. Hallelujah. And there's the outcome of justification. Just very quickly, two things brought before us here. I'll briefly mention. One is the testimony of verse 7. And the other is the typology from verse 9 onwards. What is that testimony? Well, we see in Genesis 15 verse 7, these words. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. God gave him a clear testimony concerning his calling in the world, why the Lord had called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. And we see as believers that we've been called by God to a new life and to a new inheritance. And with no desire to go back to the old bondage of paganism in which we once were held. That's what we learned from Abram. God revealed to his servant when he was justified that he had a great purpose for his life. And if you get saved, God will have a great purpose for your life. And then there's the typology as well. See here in the, the verses 9 onwards that the Lord told him to make sacrifice, take a heifer of three years old, a she-goat, a ram, turtle dove, young pigeon. And it talks about how that he offered them up. And verse 11, when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. That, you know, the, the birds in Scripture attacking the carcasses as, as a type of satanic activity. Remember how Jesus said whenever the seed is sown that the birds come and they snatch away the seed. This is what's pictured here. But the typology is significant because Abraham being justified by faith was led more distinctly to see the power of sacrifice. Here he is leaning again upon the blood, upon the sacrifice he offers at the altar. The Lord showed him and typed the cross work of Jesus and that's really the significance of the event before us. We talk about those birds coming down and attacking the sacrifice. 
Boy, how the devil loves to attack the sacrifice of Christ. How he loves to attack the gospel that I'm preaching today. There are many false gospels being preached. And the devil doesn't like it when the true gospel is set forth. But Abraham was led to see the power of the blood to satisfy God and cleanse the sinner. And we may see the same thing. You know, when you're a justified believer, it's my conviction that you, as time goes on, come to appreciate more and more the work of Calvary. You understand more and more what it is that Jesus has done for you. It becomes a situation where Jesus is more and more precious to your soul. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. May it be so in all of our lives. And if you don't know the Lord today, it's my prayer that the Lord will bring you to where Abraham came. Just to simply trust in him. As the hymn says, only trust him. Only trust him. Only trust him now. He will save you. Hallelujah. He will save you now. May it be so.